Why don't you grab your Bibles and turn to 1 John. We're going to read chapter 1 together. 1 John chapter 1. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. Uh, I've got the text up on the screen, I think. Um, but it'd be better if you have your own Bibles and read along best as you can with that. 1 John chapter 1. Verse 1 says this. What was from the beginning... What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that as we come today to worship, to fellowship, to sit under your word, would give us ears to hear what you're saying. Well, for those that have come rejoicing today, we celebrate with them. For those that have come feeling weary and broken, we rejoice with them because you are the God who receives the weary and the broken. Lord, let us all hear your voice clearly this morning and respond to it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I've had um, what I think is an immense privilege of traveling fairly extensively over the course of my life so far both within Australia and more widely. And one of the things I enjoy is sitting down to chat with people who have also travelled fairly extensively. And I, I often ask them, what is it about travel that you have found appealing? What is it that keeps you going back? You know that saying, oh, someone's been bitten by the travel bug. What, what is that bug for you? And for some... It's the places that they've been, right? 
the things that they've seen. Um, and generally what comes up in that conversation are the landscapes and the landmarks that have sort of punctuated their travel stories. And generally those people will soon pull out, well, depends on their uh, vintage. Some, sometimes it's one of those books, folders with those clear vinyl sheets with little handwritten notes on it and they bring out their photo albums and they show you this is when we went to this place and look at this landscape and for others they'll bring out their phone or their iPad or they'll go oh you must sit down and watch it on our TV we've done up a presentation for it and here's the link and okay great and look to be sure there are there are phenomenal places in this world And you don't even have to leave the borders of our own state or our own nation to see them, which is good at the moment, isn't it? There are incredible places that I've seen, awe-inspiring places that you almost have to sort of pinch yourself to think how fortunate you are that you've actually got to see this in your lifetime. I think that even the best photos or the best documentaries fail to truly capture the grandeur of what God has created in this world. But for other people, and for me, it's not really the landscapes or the landmarks that keep me going back and wanting to travel. For me, it's culture. For me, it's people. Culture isn't something that you can see and take a photo of, really. It's something that you experience, isn't it? Culture can't easily be defined, even. But it can be felt. You can feel it. And of course, we're surrounded by our own culture here on the east coast of Australia. But usually we don't have eyes to see our own culture very clearly. But we do notice it when we go cross-culture. When we go somewhere else and experience something different and we think, wow, that's so different. I've never experienced that before. Culture fascinates me. The reality is, wherever people are, culture exists. That's what culture is. It's sometimes the written rules, most often it's the unwritten rules that govern how a people exist together. And so we usually think of culture as being connected to various other maybe ethnic groups or overseas adventures. But culture exists everywhere, even here in Raymond Terrace. That's why people join up to like those stupid Facebook pages. You know where you're in the terrace when, you know, and I've heard about them. We, we, We know about the terrace or we know about North Sydney or we know about wherever it is, because there's some sort of culture that defines that place. Raymond Terrace Community Church has a culture because people exist here. And there are written and unwritten rules, aren't there, about how we govern and live together. The question remains, though, what is that culture? What shapes our 
culture. Today is the launch of a three-part series titled Hope in Uncertain Times. And my intent is that as a church, we would lift our eyes together and look forward to what God is doing in what are these generally very unsettling times that we live in, right? In, in the two messages that follow this one, we're going to focus on two essential truths about Jesus that should bring us hope and should bring security. Two things that we know to be true about Jesus that are going to center our affections on him and build hope and security in us as a church as we move forward into whatever 2021 and the years ahead hold. They're two, I think, doctrinally correct ways to think about who Jesus is and how he relates to us as his church But today, what I want to do is step back from that just a little bit, to step back from doctrine, as important as that is, and see if we can discern the place of culture in providing hope and a path forward for us. And so we're going to talk about gospel culture today. Much of what I want to highlight today has been influenced by a book that I read in the last year or so and reread it a couple of times, and the book is by a guy by the name of Ray Ortland, and he pastored for many years a church called Emmanuel Church in Nashville. And um, from what I can see from the outside looking in at least, I think what they've developed a reputation for is a strong gospel-shaped culture. And Ray, Ray wrote a, a short but very powerful book, which is just simply called The Gospel... And the subtitle is How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ. Isn't that what we want? We we want this church to portray the beauty of Christ to the world that we live in. And so I read this book and I've reread it a couple of times and I've enjoyed it. And some of what I'm talking about today has probably sparked out of there. And you may be thinking, well, hang on. Chris, isn't the Bible filled with all the things that we need to know? Things that we need to believe? Lists of doctrines? And of course, the answer to that is yes. The Bible is filled with important doctrinal truths. Things that we must believe. But this isn't all it contains. It's also filled with culture. It's also filled with what happens when the Bible marries together inseparably the realities of gospel doctrine, things that we believe, but also the way that that belief affects people. And it talks about gospel culture. But I'm going to let Ray explain it. In two minutes, better than I could probably do in 15. You want to play that video?
Ray speaks very quietly. You'll have to... <laughs> you'll have to listen carefully. We might ask him to repeat what he's saying shortly. Can't see how passionately he is talking about, though. I, I went to a conference a few years ago where Ray was speaking in person. He was visiting in Australia. And um, someone called him the um, gospel ninja. Nah, Ray, you need to talk up, mate. Let's leave it. Don't worry about it. I'm going to explain what Ray says very imperfectly. Um, Just go to the next slide after him. And I'm going to explain two things just to get our our, um, terms defined. This is what Ray says is gospel doctrine. Gospel doctrine is... The biblical message of divine grace for the undeserving. God, through the perfect life, atoning death and bodily resurrection of Jesus, rescues all his people from the wrath of God into peace with God with a promise of the full restoration of his created order forever. All to the praise of the glory of grace. That's what gospel doctrine is about. What God has done on our behalf that we could not accomplish for ourselves, for our salvation and for his glory. That's gospel doctrine. But what is gospel culture? What is gospel culture? Well, it's the shared experience of grace for the undeserving. The shared experience of grace for the undeserving. The corporate incarnation of the biblical message in the relationships. Tim, you like this word? The vibe, the feel, the tone, values, priorities, aroma, honesty, freedom, gentleness, humility, cheerfulness. Indeed, the total human reality of a church defined and sweetened by the gospel. Gospel doctrine are those things that we believe to be true. Gospel culture are how those beliefs shape our behavior. It's one thing to say, isn't it, that I believe this to be true. I can quote the Apostles' Creed. I can sing the song. It's a very different thing. Another thing altogether for us to take what we believe to be true and marry it with the everyday behavior of how you and I exist and live with each other in this world. So these two realities married together make a difference. It matters because it's possible. It is possible to sincerely preach true doctrine while at the same time utterly denying that doctrine by the ugly anti-gospel culture that we live with. So we started by reading 1 John chapter 1. I want to go back to that. Grab your Bibles and we're going to highlight a few things. This is about more than belief. More than belief. 
This is about a gospel that leads us somewhere and asks something of us. So I want you to notice three things about these opening four verses. Just the four verses that we have at the beginning of this chapter. And I want you to notice just three things about them. I'm going to point them out to you as we go. First thing I want you to notice is this. That gospel doctrine... So we're talking about doctrine now, not culture for a moment. Gospel doctrine isn't based on opinions and subjective emotions. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 1. We're just going to read the first two, two and a half or so, three verses. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we've observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you. Did you hear those words? We saw it. We heard it. We felt it. John's saying this gospel is founded on actual realities. Things that we've seen and heard and felt. The gospel isn't some vague vibe. The gospel isn't some feeling, some opinion, opinion that you might have today but might change tomorrow. The gospel isn't shaped by just the popular view of our wider culture which shifts continually like a, a wave blown before a storm. The gospel can be testified about and proclaimed, meaning it is a body of objective truths. They can be expressed with words. They can be written down. We can say with confidence, this is the gospel. I know I've said this before, but I want to settle it once for all time. The popular saying, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words, is flawed. I understand where it comes from, but it's flawed. Words are always necessary when you preach the gospel. God came. He is a God who came with words. The gospel can be explained and spoken and declared. It must be. So if we're going to rearrange that phrase, we should say this. Preach the gospel. Use words. It's necessary. Here's the second thing I want you to notice about these opening four verses or so, though. John makes it very clear that gospel doctrine... The things that we can declare, the things that we can speak, the, the truths that we can believe, gospel doctrine leads to gospel-formed fellowship. Have a look in the second half of verse 3. So I'll pick it up in verse 3 just to get the flow of it. He says, what we have seen and heard we also declare to you so that, all right, so that. What's being declared, what's being spoken now, what's being testified about, John understands this is not just a list of truths to speak out, a list of things to tick off and say, yes, I believe that. John knows that these truths are meant to accomplish something. But what do they accomplish? 
Let's read. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Gospel doctrine should lead to gospel-formed fellowship. That's why I say the gospel is shaped to be more than simply a belief system. Because the gospel clearly demonstrates that the gospel doctrine that we believe is designed to shape the community that it's found within. This fellowship that John speaks about is shaped by the gospel, both in the way that it affects us horizontally, so see what he says, so that you also may have fellowship with us. John's talking to his listeners, he's saying the gospel, when it's at work in amongst the people, it creates fellowship between people. The gospel does something where it binds people that would otherwise be apart together in relationship. Where we are centered and unified around things that we believe, yes, but that belief creates relationship and fellowship amongst us. But it's not just horizontally. He says, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. Jesus Christ. So that fellowship goes beyond the horizontal and it begins to affect corporately our fellowship with the Father. The things that we believe to be true about what God has done for us bind us together, but bind us in fellowship with God as well. So gospel doctrine should lead to gospel formed fellowship. The third thing I want you to notice about these opening four verses. That gospel doctrine should lead to gospel-formed fellowship that is joyful. That's joyful. Have a look at verse 4. We are writing these things so that our joy may be what? Suppressed. No. So that our joy might be complete. There's a type of joy that is incomplete unless the gospel forms it. Do you realize that? It might be founded in all sorts of enjoyable things even. Could be travel. Could even be great relationships that you have with people. Could be in something that you have in common with something. But unless it's the gospel, John says it's incomplete. If there is any group of people in this entire world that should know what true joy is, then it should be those who have experienced the grace of God in Christ, right? I think too often we are far too somber. I am. If joy can't be found in this community, I'm not talking hypothetically now about just churches in general, Raymond Terrace Community Church, you folk, whether you're here or online. If joy can't be found here, in this community, then we've bought into a distorted gospel. Because the gospel brings joy. This is what Jonathan Edwards said on this topic. I enjoy this, even though he said it long before I was ever born. 
God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. And the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams. But God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. The gospel is meant for our joy. It's not some type of superficial joy, sort of one of those inch-thick, hiding-the-dark realities of the soul joy that we sometimes do. You know the ones where we paint the happy face on our... We we walk in with our masks full of smiles and people say, how are things going? And you say, great, thanks, because that's the expected Christian response. I'm not talking about that type of joy. I'm talking about an authentic joy. A joy where I don't have anything to hide, nor do I feel the need to. A joy where we know that we are fully known by God, yes, but we are known by one another. And the gospel has formed our fellowship so that we don't have to perform for one another to gain each other's approval anymore. Because that's what the gospel does. That type of joy is far deeper than just the circumstantial happiness that we can have in this world. A joy where we can start to echo what Paul says about his life, where he says, I am sorrowful, but always rejoicing. That even in our pain or our grief or our sorrow, we can find joy in the gospel with each other. That is how the true gospel doctrine should shape an authentic gospel culture. Every true thing about God should connect with and influence us for our joyful fellowship. The shape of our community here begins to reflect the shape of the gospel that we believe. Here's a helpful way that I think, again, Ray Ortland describes it and he uses a little maths equation for those of you who like to think in equations some of you do here's a a helpful way i think he says gospel doctrine so think of doctrine the things that we believe gospel doctrine minus gospel culture equals hypocrisy think about that for a moment gospel doctrine Minus gospel culture. What does that look like? That's when we say, here are all the things that we believe to be true. Here they are. We've got them on a piece of paper. I want you to sign it. Whatever it is that we do with it. Here are all the things that we say to be true. But minus gospel culture. Which means, 
We don't live any of that stuff out. What does that look like? Hypocrisy, right? I believe this. I live like that. Hypocrite. Okay, here's the second equation. Gospel culture. Minus gospel doctrine. Well, that equals fragility. It's fragile. Gospel culture. We like just the vibe, right? Let's just be together. And there are sayings that we have. We use them here, and they're not bad sayings. They're good ones. We like to be family. And we can, we can hold on to all of that stuff and say, we just like it here, and we like it that everyone's happy, and we like it that we're all just getting along, but let's not talk about the things that we believe because that might upset someone. If we try to chase gospel culture, but we leave gospel doctrine out of it, it is fragile like glass. It will break because it's not founded on anything secure and eternal. It's just founded on our preferences. And when those preferences change, we've got to keep everyone happy and we've got to chase everyone and pat everyone on the back and say, oh no, please don't go. We all like being together. We're family, right? Let's just pretend it's all good. Gospel culture minus gospel doctrine equals fragility. But here's the last one. When we can put together gospel doctrine and add to it gospel doctrine and gospel culture, then he says that brings power. That brings power. We have the freedom to stand on the truth of God's word and say, look at the way this not only forms our faith, but it forms our community and our culture. And there is power there. Power for one another as we live this out and power for our community as they get to see there are people in our world, in our lives who preach the truth and live the truth in such a way that they reflect each other. And there's power there. So let's aim for an authentic gospel culture. As we talk about a church lifting our eyes to find what is our hope for the future, then this is a worthy thing to pursue, isn't it? That we would be a church with gospel doctrine. I want people to say, oh, we love about Raymond Terrace that they preach the Bible there. I think that is a fantastic thing to say. In fact, when I've heard that said in the past, I just get this sort of, it's like, oh, thank God that the Bible is at the center of what we do. But it saddens me if people walk away and say, I did not feel the Spirit of God in that place. I didn't experience what it means to be a part of Jesus' family in that place. That's tragic. Our desire and our goal for this year and beyond, shouldn't it be? We want the Bible to be center. We want the Bible to be authoritative. We want the Bible preached, yes, but we want people to experience Jesus here. There's an old saying, I haven't heard it here. If I had did, it was maybe a very long time ago. But there used to be a bit of a, um, a fad for a while when people were welcoming to church. And they would say, leave your troubles at the door and come in and worship. What a tragedy. Yeah. Leave your troubles at the door, bring them in. Bring them in and lay them at the foot of the cross. Don't, don't pretend 
that this is somehow different to what's out there. God's calling us into authentic community where we don't have to pretend. We don't have to sort of just unhitch those things and just sort of go, oh, let's pretend that everything's okay here now for the moment. No. If you're broken, then come. If you're rejoicing, come. But authentic gospel culture is something that we're aiming for. It's built on the realities of the hope that we have in the grace that's found in the gospel itself. It's not built on any other common denominator that we might have as a church. People gather for all sorts of reasons. Maybe they just all enjoy the same things. We enjoy the same movies, so we're going to form a club. We enjoy the same type of music, so let's just all come along. We enjoy the same type of decor, the same type of lighting, or the same type of technology, or the same type of whatever. So let's just gather together. They're not reasons why we gather together. I hope they aren't. You can always tell if it is, you know. Just change something. We aren't the church because we all like the same music or because we all hold the same political opinions. We aren't the church because we all share a similar ethnic heritage or even because we all 100% agree on every doctrinal position. We're the church because God has redeemed us by grace. We're the church here because he has invited sinners into his presence on the merit of his son Jesus and not ours. That's why the church exists. That's how it exists. So I want you to look very briefly at the way John connects doctrine and culture together in such a way that it demonstrates the power of the gospel. We're not going to go through a whole bunch of points on this. Just, I want you just to see it. Verse 5 onwards. Verse 5, he, he links it all back to the doctrine of God. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If you wanted to try and summarize the doctrine of God down as small as you can, I think John nails it. This is who God is, he says. But but the doctrine doesn't stand alone in this chapter. It's not just a good verse to memorize so that you can say, next time someone asks, can you tell me about God? And you can say, I know this one. God is light and there's no darkness in him. Tick. Let's move on. It's not what John does. Following that statement about who God is, he shows us how that truth shapes his people to be. How they live with each other. And so he connects who God is by putting together five scenarios. And they all begin with if we. Did you see them when we read through? If we. If we. If we. There are five of them. I'm just going to read them out to you. First one is verse six. If we say, we have fellowship with him. What's that? If we say, we, we have fellowship with him. And yet, we walk in darkness, we're lying, not practicing the truth. That sounds like that equation, doesn't it? Gospel doctrine minus gospel culture equals hypocrisy. Here's the next one, verse 7. If we walk in the light, 
as he himself is in the light. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all power or sin. There's the power, right? Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. Truth's not in us. Here's the fourth one in verse 9. If we confess our sin, it's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want you to note, though, as many of us may have over the years memorized that verse, I have, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We love that verse, right? But did you notice that the context of what he's talking about is fellowship, is community? Somewhere in the Reformation 500 plus years ago, when the church said, we no longer are going to follow the Pope, we're no longer going to be Catholic, we want to be a Protestant nation and Protestant church, somehow in the middle of all of that, we threw out confession with it. John says, if we confess our sins, that just not... That doesn't only mean that I come privately when no one else is around, I'm going to tell God my sins. He knows them anyway, but I'm going to tell them. The context of this is that we have the type of authentic relationship where we're, I can sit with a brother, I can sit with a friend, and authentically sit because the gospel has shaped our relationship and built our fellowship so that I don't have to perform anymore. I don't have to hide anymore. I can simply come and say, hey, listen, I'm struggling. If we confess, if we, if we confess our sins, well, guess what? God is faithful and he is righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what authentic fellowship shaped by the gospel looks like. It looks like mutual confession to one another. I'm not setting up a booth. I'm not going to give you some rosary beads. But I would love it if you and I could have a cup of coffee together and we didn't have to pretend anymore. That we could just simply say, I'm a sinner. I'm struggling this week. Can you pray with me? Can you walk beside me? Wouldn't that be great? Last one. If we say we have not sinned, not only are we liars, that's what that earlier said in verse 8, right? If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. Verse 10 says, if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar. Because God says all have sinned and fallen short of the, right, the, the glory of God. So if we say we're not sinners, we've got it all together. Aren't we a great community? Aren't we perfect? Not only do we deceive ourselves, but in front of the world, we're actually pointing and saying God is a liar. That's not a testimony of the gospel. So somehow in this world where we think that performance matters, that as long as it all looks good, that people will be impressed. They're not. They're not impressed. But if we live authentically with one another in front of a watching world, imperfectly, and keep pointing back to a God who has extended grace towards sinners, I wonder what could happen in Raymond Terrace. 
So let's look forward. Raymond Terrace Community Church is a place where we take gospel doctrine seriously. I hope you believe that. I hope you've seen that. And we want to grow deeper in that. We want to preach gospel truths. We want our ministries to children and to youth and to young adults and adults and seniors or whoever you are, whether single or married. We want all of that to be rooted and formed by the unchanging reality of God's grace towards sinners shown in Christ. We want the proclamation of the gospel to be central in everything that we do. We don't want to gather together and have the opportunity for someone to walk out that door and not have heard the gospel. We reject the notion of a works-based salvation. And we cling to the reality that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. We reject the false gospel of prosperity and we cling to the sufficiency of Christ even in our poverty and sickness should they come. And by God's grace, we will not harbour sinners, but we will fight to ensure that we are a safe place for sinners to come. So that we can come to grace and come to forgiveness and come to restoration and to come to wholeness and to come to joy. We commit to building a gospel culture where sinners far and wide may travel to experience the grace of God even as they hear the liberating truths of the doctrines of God. Will you commit to doing that? It makes no difference if I do. But if we do, well, that's power, right? Will you stand up? Will you pray? Father, we want to be a church of gospel doctrine. We want to preach the truth and let the truth be heard. But we want to add to that gospel culture. Lord, we want to be a people where the gospel takes root, not just in what we say, but in how we live. We want grace to be felt here. To be experienced here, not just preached here. Lord, you are our hope, our only hope. Whether in joy or in sadness, Lord, help us to know you and help us to experience you as we live in our faith with each other. May that be true for those of us gathered here or via live stream. But Lord, for many more who have yet to know, hear, or experience your grace. Lord, may they come also. In Jesus' name, amen.